0: Well, I know you all just ate, and normally I'm not intimidated by that, except so did I. <laughs> so if you, if you see me just start kind of doing this, just uh, come lift me up. But at least it's going to get worse because dessert's coming in a little while. Turn to Psalm 23, if you would. We'll begin every session reading this glorious, eternal psalm. Psalm 23, the Psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Well, last time we started with gearing up, and that was a lot of information, but we needed to lay that foundation. We looked at dedication to the study and meditation process organization, and in meditation. This session, we're going into the battle plan, kind of still a planning stage. We're going to talk about preparation, contextualization, and then meditation. Meditation will always be the last thing we do. The rest of our sessions will have three parts to each. These aren't exactly sermons in the strictest sense. We're going to do Psalm 23 as an example of whatever phase of study we're in. I'm going to deconstruct and explain what I did and then walk through some sample meditations and show you how I've done that. Basically, what we're doing is one sermon in slow motion. That's kind of what we're doing, and I hope that'll be useful to you. And so, I want to just walk through the first phase of study for Psalm 23. And this part isn't in your notes because my my goal isn't so much just for you to to get a lot out of Psalm 23, although that will be great. My goal is to use it as an example so that you get something out of whatever text you choose as well. But the way I like to think about beginning to study a text is you just sort of walk around it a little bit. You just get get the lay of the land. So let's just walk around Psalm 23 a few times and get a feel for it. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of the Psalms. He called it the nightingale of the Psalms. It's, it's unique, it's special. It is the glorious composition of King David. It is by far the most famous of all the Psalms. It's known even to countless unbelievers um, as well. It's the most well-known Bible passage by unbelievers. At the last count um, that I know of, even among uh Hip hop artists and rappers, and, and even just contemporary uh, folk singers, Psalm 23 is quoted in the lyrics of at least 25 different artists uh, just in the past 10, 15 years uh, in all genres of music. There's no direct indication what the exact situation that the Psalm was set in, and that's important for us, but there are some clues. First of all, there's references to mortal danger, valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, the presence of my enemies. So there's there's clearly danger. There's references to wilderness, the pastures, the quiet waters, the the paths or the roads. Some think that this is similar to Psalm 3 and is set during the time of Absalom's rebellion against David And, and that fits but it's not conclusive and so we go with what we know for sure. You have the obvious imagery of a shepherd in the pasture. You have the obvious imagery of being a guest at a banquet. That helps us understand the audience. The audience is ultimately the weary worshiper of Yahweh who's in need of comfort, in need of sound theology, in need of hope for the future. And specifically, Psalm 23, along with all the psalms, but, but in particular Psalm 23... It's meant to be utilized in worshiping God, that it's a, it's a direct aid to worship, to simply read the words and to believe them. There isn't a specific geographic place associated with Psalm 23, but there are places in the psalm that mean a lot. They convey meaning to the original reader. Here are the places, green pastures, that's a place, quiet waters, paths or roads, a valley, the house of Yahweh. So there are geographic references, but they're more metaphorical in the sense that they represent bigger ideas. Culturally, this is written to a people very familiar with the connotations of those places. So it's important to consider what those places meant to a 10th century reader. That's when David uh, wrote this. What, What would it mean to be beside green pastures and quiet waters, valleys, and so forth? In the psalm, there are three primary characters. And and identifying the characters is always helpful to understanding any Bible passage. There is Yahweh the shepherd. There is the reader. And there are the reader's enemies. Those are the characters. Yahweh the shepherd, the reader, and the reader's enemies. From a literary standpoint, this falls into the category of the poetry books. This is obviously the most poetic book of all the Uh, books of the Bible, the book of Psalms, these are poems meant to be put to music. The main question that you ask of a poetry passage is, how does this fit into the overall redemptive plan of God? Poems in the Bible are not just stuck there because God couldn't think of a story to tell. They fit a plan. From a New Testament perspective, in this poem you see themes that are very familiar to you, and this is one of the reasons that Psalm 23 is so beloved in the church age because we recognize it. It's, it's familiar. You see God as a shepherd. Jesus called himself the good shepherd in John 10. You see God being victorious over the enemy of death. You see an eternal dwelling place with God, an eternity dwelling with God. These are very New testament uh, concepts, and so we're familiar with them, and that's why Psalm 23 resonates with us. But from an Old Testament perspective where those concepts are much less well developed, the poem makes those ideas memorable. It makes them able to be passed down from generation to generation in hope of a day when the faithful dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Most readers and hearers of Psalm 23 in an Old Testament context are not going to connect that to the New Testament because why? There is no New Testament. So they need their own context And when God takes this poem and gives us these glorious concepts, they're passed down from generation to generation because they're memorable. The most important feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Brief phrases that are meant to go together. In very simple terms, parallelism can be a contrast or a complement. Or it can maybe add some information. Uh, For example, verse 1, Yahweh is my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. If you ask the reason why shall I not want, why? Because Yahweh is a shepherd, is my shepherd. And particular to the poetry of the Psalms, there are many different types of Psalms. We look closely at the parallelism, but looking at a bigger picture, with all these different types of Psalms, and I'm not going to go into them because it won't help us, Uh, Psalm 23 is very unique in that it doesn't fit into any of the normal classifications of psalms. It it has elements, really, of all of them. So at this stage, we're not going to worry about that. Generally speaking, though, Psalm 23 is a song. It's a song of confident trust in the Lord by an individual who has personal faith in God. I want to start high and work our way lower. I want to talk about psalms in general, then get to the context of Psalm 23. We're just kind of laying the foundation here. You've probably seen this division in your Bible, but the book of Psalms is very intentionally divided into five books. This isn't a new arrangement of the Psalms. It wasn't made by the the publishers of the English Bible you have. This is the final edit of the scribes immediately after the exile. The post-exile community of Jews did the final edit of the Psalms. Book 1 is Psalm 1 through 41. And generally, it emphasizes assurance of God's protection from enemies. That's the general theme. It's highlighted by Psalm 2, the coronation of the Messianic king in the future, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Very, very important. Book 2 goes from Psalm 42 to 72. And generally, it contains themes of a desire for a faithful nation to experience the blessing of God. That if you're faithful, you'll experience that blessing And it ends in Psalm 72 with a prayer for the reign of a faithful king who's victorious over his enemies. A prayer that the Davidic covenant will be kept. Have you seen the theme so far? Davidic covenant in book 1, Davidic covenant in book 2. Psalm 3, or book 3 rather, is Psalm 73 through 89. The theme basically is a nation is in trouble because they are disobedient. That becomes more and more apparent. Nations in trouble. It ends with Psalm 89, which is basically the Davidic covenant in, in uh, poetic form. It's so three times now you have the theme of the Davidic covenant coming out. Book 4, Psalm 90-106. through 106. This is generally historical, looking back to the time of Moses and to the Exodus. In fact, sometimes this collection is called the Moses Collection. It begins with the Psalm of Moses, which laments the fact that God is letting His people die because of their sins... And yet God is faithful and a king is coming. And peppered throughout these psalms in Psalm 90 through 106, you have Psalm 93, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, 98, 99. These are called enthronement psalms. These are psalms of a hope of a king that will come. It ends with Psalm 106 and a prayer at the end for God to gather all of his scattered people from among the nations When, from the rest of Scripture, do we know is going to be the time when God gathers his people back from the scattered nations when there is a Davidic king ruling on earth? Davidic covenant, we're four for four so far. And Book 5, Psalm 107 through 150, is generally speaking a, a hope for the future. There's a growing emphasis on praising the Lord until the climactic, glorious doxology of Psalms, Psalm 146 through 150 which ends on a call for total praise by all creation. Let everything that has breath praise Yah, praise Yahweh. So where does Psalm 23 fit? It fits into book one, emphasizing protection from God's enemies. And we see that very clearly. The phrase in the presence of my enemies in verse five. So that's the that's the big giant view way up high. What about when you get closer to Psalm 23, the near or immediate context? Well, Psalm 23 in book 1 is also now the middle psalm of a messianic trilogy. And here's each of them have some components. Psalm 22 is Christ the suffering servant who is crucified. Psalm 22:16 For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Christ the suffering servant. Psalm 23. Christ is the shepherd who protects his people. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's a protecting shepherd. And in Psalm 24, Christ is portrayed as the returning king who comes in glory. Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Psalm 22 is written in the past tense. It's a time in the past. Psalm 23, a present moment for the reader. Psalm 24 is written future, a time for the future when the king arrives. And in fact, each of the Psalms has a symbol attached to it, embedded to it. What would be the symbol of Psalm 22? It's the cross. The symbol of Psalm 23, the shepherd's staff. And the symbol in Psalm 24, the king's crown, or as one writer says, the cross, the crook, and the crown, is how you understand this messianic trilogy. And so if you consider Psalm 23 outside of the obvious fact that the shepherd is Messiah himself, it ignores the context. Psalm 23 is the work of the shepherd in the present time. And it ends with a glimpse at the future. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. And so, to put all this together, Psalm 23 is a poem set into Book 1 of the Psalms, which has clear messianic themes in the whole book. It's a song of confident trust in the Lord. It utilizes parallelism so that each verse helps interpret itself. And most importantly, it's the middle of the messianic trilogy of Psalm 22, 23, 24, the suffering servant in the past, the Protecting shepherd in the present and the reigning king of the future. That's where you start. Now, I took, I don't know, 11 minutes to do that. So, what I want to do now is, is I'm going to go back and I'm going to deconstruct what we just did so that you can do it. I want to talk about preparation and then contextualization. And then I'm going to go through the meditations that I personally thought through as a sample. Just from what we learned today in 11 minutes, no more than that. No further. So let me talk about preparation, first of all. And I I believe this is in your notes. First, you have to start with mental preparation. A couple of books by the authors Duvall and Hayes. There's the the short version called Journey into God's Word. Then there's a longer version. But they give a a roadmap for study. And we talk about this in uh, Bible Training Institute. But basically what it is is Four steps in mental preparation: that you you grasp the text in the author's and reader's time and culture. You use past tense verbs to describe what's happening. Paul commanded the Galatians to do such and such. The second step in mental preparation: you use your context study, what we just did, to begin to understand the differences between the original audience and you. You would say Paul commanded the Galatians to. And now you're asking the question, what's different and what's the same about the Galatians situation and today? The third step in your mental preparation, you're looking for timeless theological principles. This is what you're getting ready to do. Timeless theological principles. Paul commanded the Galatians 2, and a timeless theological principle is. And then you meditate on and apply the timeless principles. So that's the big picture. You're mentally preparing to walk through that general roadmap. Now, as part of your preparation, and we'll be real practical here, is picking a portion of Scripture. That if you're going to go and take this seriously and and do a study, that may be the hardest part. Because it's sort of like giving a, a kid a dollar who's never bought anything in his life and then sending them into Walmart and saying, go buy something. You know what happens? They freeze. They're like, oh, they don't know what to do. Or they fill a cart with everything and they don't understand you can't buy everything with a dollar. You can't buy anything with a dollar, but that's another issue. So, I want to help you narrow it down. Let me give you a technical term that you may see in some of the resources you read, and that term is pericope. Pericope. It looks like pericope, but it's pericope. A pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, it's a set of verses that forms a unit of thought. Now, some would say, well, why don't you just use the word paragraph? Because a pericope might be a paragraph, it might be contained in a paragraph. It might be a whole bunch of paragraphs. So it's a it's a unit of thought that makes sense. It has to make logical sense, but you do have some freedom to define the extent of your pericope that you want to study. Now, for example, the pericope I chose for our weekend was all of Psalm 23. It's already defined. It's very clear. But I could have just as easily chosen Psalm 23, 1 through 3. That focuses on the work of God with Four statements that start with the personal pronoun, he. That's a pericope. Or I could choose Psalm 23, 4 through 6. That focuses on the work of God in a different way with four statements starting with you or your. And so there's a clear difference. Or I could just choose Psalm 23, 1 as the head statement of the psalm, which is explained by verses 2 through 5. So why bother you with the weird word pericope? Because part of your preparation is to be realistic and not get over your your head. So your goal in your first Bible study project after this weekend is not to say, I will study the book of Jeremiah. Yikes. By word count, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament, so don't start there. The goal for you is to pick a pericope, say that five times fast, that you can sink your teeth into and not be overwhelmed. Let me give you an example of what not to do. A few years ago, I preached through the entire Pentateuch, and I took about 65 messages to do that. It was somewhat like a scuba diver diving to the bottom of the ocean and then having your oxygen tank taken away. You just look up and say, okay, I'm dead, that's it. But it took months of preparation. I read thousands of pages from theologians on the theology of the Pentateuch, just to get to the point where I could just start studying for the individual messages. So don't do that to yourself. You'll, you'll give up before you, you begin. You remember being eight years old, and I know this is a weird thing for some of you who grew up here, but there's this stuff called snow. And uh, you remember, you're going to build the biggest snowman in the world. And you, you roll out to a big old ball that's about this big, and you say, all right, that's his foot. Now we're going to get the other foot. And what happens? You give up after five more minutes, right? So it's better to do something realistic. So let me give you some ideas for picking a pericope, a portion of Scripture. First of all, trust 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Don't choose as if it's the last choice you'll ever make. It's not. So what I mean by that is if you're having trouble picking, then just do the old, there it is, every passage you pick will be useful to you and then you find a pericope there so trust the lord that there's not one passage better than another but here's some ideas consider a doctrinal portion of an epistle somewhere in ephesians 1 through 3 for example That i want to study a theological concept or consider an applicational portion of an epistle such as somewhere in ephesians 4 through 6 your wives would love it if you picked ephesians 5 husbands love your wives as christ loved the church They'll be bringing you iced tea and saying, hey, take your time studying that. You enjoy yourself. Consider a highly familiar text so that you can learn the real meaning, not the culturally familiar meaning. For example, Romans 8, 28. Very familiar to us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We tend to immediately apply this to the sovereignty of God in our lives. That's correct, but it's incomplete. The context is predestination, justification, and the glorification of the believer in Christ. And so more precisely, Romans 8.28 is about the sovereignty of God, not just over our lives, but over our eternal salvation. Or pick one that's highly unfamiliar to expand your horizons. I can't give you examples of unfamiliar texts because I don't know which ones are unfamiliar to you, but, but you know them. Consider a familiar Old Testament story, maybe a larger pericope. Pick, pick one that you know, that you know, that you know. Pick the, the, the story of uh, David and Jonathan when Jonathan is shooting arrows to tell him that, that Saul is, go, is coming after him and find out what it really means. Consider a psalm or a portion of a psalm, or consider a gospel narrative, one event or scene in the ministry of Jesus. And I'll say this, your English Bibles in the Gospels generally do a really good job of dividing up pericopes in the Gospels really well. They just divide it with either white space or a heading uh, over everyone. So it, that work is really done for you there. Then there's spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation involves three steps. The first one is Reading. Take time to read your chosen passage multiple times. Don't be afraid of reading it 20, 30, and 40 times. That alone will provoke a lot of meditation on the text and you'll, you'll get to know it like never before. Um, it is not out of bounds to say, if I'm going to study five verses, I'm going to read it 100 times before I ever put anything to pen and paper. The second step is prayer. Prayer. Take time to pray, to ask God to answer Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes I may behold wonderful things from your law. If you're reading it over and over again and praying through it, and if you have a writing implement anywhere near you, and if you have a notebook anywhere near you, it's going to be, if you got a pen in your hand, you're, you're going to be like having to pull yourself away. You're going to be desperate to record thoughts, but don't do it yet. Let it infiltrate your heart. And then the third step in spiritual preparation is put on humility. Pray for humility. To not do the usual American evangelical so-called Bible study of jumping in five minutes to a familiar application and disparaging the idea of simply gaining knowledge. I, I have lost track of how many people I've heard say, well, I, I don't want to just gain knowledge. That doesn't do any good. You know, it was the Apostle Peter who said that, that we should grow in the... Grace and what? Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't grow in grace unless you grow in knowledge. The reason you pray for humility is that hopefully your study will change your understanding of that text. That's why it's really fun to pick one you already know. Because if you study it deeply enough, you're going to find out you may add some to your understanding. So it should do that. If you're studying just to confirm something you already believe, then that's not study. Okay, that's the preparation. Now, I want to talk about contextualization, the context. And what I'm going to do right now is exactly uh, item for item what I just did in Psalm 23. I'm going in exactly in the same order. I just put it all together and I didn't label it for you. But now I'm going to label it for you. And so we're just going to walk through this list. and, And when the workbooks come out, hopefully in the next couple of months, every workbook will have... First do this, then do this with, uh, with space for you to fill it out. So it's, it's going to be kind of a self-directed study. But first of all, we would look at historical and cultural context. And this is exactly what I did. First, I did the author and his situation. What, what was going on? The audience and their situation. Find the useful geography and cultural considerations. Now, um, when you're doing the historical and cultural context... Make sure you find accurate information. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, theological resources sometimes are bad about wildly speculative uh, information, so consider your sources carefully. I'll give you an example. Matthew nineteen twenty four, kind of a classically badly uh, interpreted verse. Jesus said, Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of God. The eye of the needle is said to be a a gate in Jerusalem through which camels bend down and go through. And so the debate is, well, is it a a real camel going through this gate? And I have heard that preached so many times. There's two problems with this. The, The first problem is that that is actually saying if you work hard enough and bend low enough, you can achieve salvation. So theologically, it doesn't fit. Also, it doesn't fit because there is a gate called the Camel Gate, and it was built 800 years after Jesus lived. So that's not what it's talking about. What is Jesus doing? He's using the largest animal in his region and the smallest opening that anybody knew about, the eye of a needle, to say that's how hard it is to enter the kingdom. What does that mean? It's impossible. And what what did the disciples say right after that? You know, that th- it's impossible. He says, with God, all things are possible. So, if something seems wildly speculative and it's a little bit overly exciting, check your source. If he's the only guy on planet Earth who's ever said that, he's wrong. Another caution. Don't get more enamored with the background information than the text itself. Once in a while... um, Somebody gets a little bit nerdy about background information and you can become a walking website of ancient information. That's helpful only to the extent that it helps you understand the text, but you want to get to the text. Literary context. What's the genre? And And you say, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Well, God talks about it because he has very specific types of literature in the Bible. Literary genre is important because it, it's like the code. It's like the key to how God is communicating with, uh, with you. Uh, Duvall and Hayes, in their book, Journey into God's Word, they say this. The literary genre, quote, acts as a kind of covenant of communication, a fixed agreement between author and reader about how to communicate. And so every genre has a basic approach. And, I, and I've given you these, and it's just a, a good starting point. Narrative or story. This is theological truths in story form. What's the main question you ask? How does the story fit into the overall redemptive plan of God? Uh, A lot of you here didn't grow up in the church, but some of you did. Some of you who grew up in the church, did you ever go to a Sunday school class where basically Sunday school was a Bible story followed by another Bible story followed by another Bible story? That's how I grew up. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Did any teacher in third grade say, here's how David and Goliath fits into the Davidic covenant, which is going to happen in a few years. Here's how it fits into the New Testament. And here it fits how it fits all the way back to Abraham. When you get to a narrative, you must answer that question. And that's, I, I see that as part of my role as a shepherd. Whenever we're doing a story, I must tell you how it fits into the rest of scripture. Otherwise it becomes a moralistic lesson, which is not what the Bible is. There's a caution, and the caution is don't moralize the text into being a simple lesson about you. David and Goliath is not about you, except to the extent that if David dies, you never get saved. But that's the only way. How about law? Law is, could be defined as theological truth in covenant law form. The main question you ask is what was the purpose of this section in God's covenant with Israel, if you're in Old Testament law? Main caution, don't inappropriately apply Mosaic law to the Christian. We're under New Covenant law. And that's, that's the main, main caution there. Do all the principles of the Old Testament law apply to the Christian? Every principle does. Every outworking does not. Poetry. Poetry. This is theological truth in po- poetic, artistic form. The main question is, what's the encouragement or exhortation the poet is conveying? Part of the reason for poetry is because it's memorable. That's why there's so many of the, the poems in Psalms, even uh, one in Ecclesiastes, some in uh, uh, Song of Solomon, definitely in Proverbs are uh, are acrostics that they uh, you go through the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, The entire book of Lamentations is five different acrostics. uh, And if you count the middle one, it's three within the middle one also. So they're meant to be memorable. So what's the encouragement? What's the exhortation? I know that we've just switched over to the Legacy Standard Bible and and I understand that and probably one verse that nobody wants to change is Psalm 23, 1 because we've all grown up with the Lord is my shepherd. How many of you here if I asked you what is Psalm 23 about could have said before tonight, the Lord is my shepherd. How many of you could have said that? You want to know why? Because it's massively poetic. And it's in poetry. There's a caution. Poetry is emotional, but it's not for the purpose of creating emotion. Did you catch that? It's emotional, but it's not for the purpose of creating emotion. Prophecy. Prophecy is theological truth in future-oriented predictive form. Some of my favorite books are prophetic. The main question, how does this prophetic section fit into the overall redemptive plan of God? Another question, is the prophecy in my pericope fulfilled later in Scripture or is it yet to be fulfilled? That's a pretty big question. The main caution, don't wildly apply Bible prophecy to current events. Please don't do that. Um, that it doesn't work and everybody has a different opinion, here's the easy way to remember that. Nothing in the Bible is happening right now, specifically speaking, the next prophetic event that's going to happen is the rapture of the church. Now, yes, all the rumors of wars and all that kind of thing, we sort of see that, but not to the level that Jesus um, predicted, not in the right timing. So don't wildly apply Bible prophecy. How about wisdom literature? Wisdom literature, theological truth in proverbial or direct teaching form. Now, uh, Psalms falls into poetry and wisdom literature by many, so there's a lot of overlap. The main question is, what's the message of living a righteous life being conveyed by the text? The wisdom literature is, how do you live out the law of God? What are the practical ways? Uh, For for example, um, the law generally says... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Proverbs, and I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing here, there's, a, there's one particular way that you love your neighbor as yourself that don't use a loud voice with your neighbor early in the morning. That's a very specific way to live out the law, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's wisdom tells you how to work out your, your righteous life. Then there's the genre of gospel. Gospel is a theo- set of theological truths in narrative form centered on the advent of Jesus Christ to the earth. There's four of them, and they're, they're their own category. The main question is, how does this fit into God's purposes for a Messiah? And the main caution, I, I think the way the Gospels are abused, worse than anything, is don't moralize the text without understanding the bigger mission of Messiah used to see this all the time. There are all these kids programs. I don't know anymore if they still are, but all these kids programs that were like cartoons of some character, you know, like a rabbit, a squirrel and a mouse. that go back in time to the time of Jesus. And they're kind of running around having their own little adventure. And every once in a while you see Jesus like he just was smoking something, just kind of randomly talking about stuff because there is no clue of fitting in the bigger mission of Messiah. And he becomes background information. I am, I'm astounded how many sermons I've heard from the Gospels where Jesus is not the main character. That's, that, that can't be. So watch out for that. If you're doing a, a, a Gospel pericope, Jesus is the main character every time. Now this is probably where our comfort level is, and that is in the genre of epistle or letter. These are theological truths presented in direct teaching with exhortation, rebuke, and application. We're, we're comfortable here because, oh, okay, he just finally said, husbands, love your wives. I can understand that. I don't have to read the whole book of Song of Solomon and extrapolate that. The main question, how does my pericope fit into the overall purpose and message of the epistle? And the main caution, if you don't understand the original context, it'll often lead you to misapply your text. And one more genre, and there's different ways to, to um Categorize these. These are my favorite. Prophetic apocalyptic. I know that's a long word to basically mean the book of Revelation. If you want to just make it simple. These are theological truths presented at the end of the Bible. Which tie up all the loose ends of prophecy. They encourage, it encourages the saved to persevere. And it encourages the lost to repent. You know what I love about the book of Revelation? There's in a single loose end that it, that it leaves undone. It ties up all of them. The main question, how does my passage, if I'm studying the passage in Revelation, contribute to the completion of God's redemptive program? What's the main caution? Don't fall into the classic covenant theology mistake of dismissing Revelation as hopelessly mysterious or all symbolic or worse, having already happened for the most part. If it has already happened, God wouldn't have put it at the end of the Bible, just to be clear about that. Now, One Bible book is not easily categorized, so pay attention to your particular pericope. Isaiah is a book of prophecy, but it has narrative. So just take into consideration you might have some overlap. Then what I did in Psalm 23 was I looked at the far context, the the big picture, the 35,000 foot view. What covenant is the book in? Is it the Israelite covenant or the new covenant? Keep this in mind. Don't misapply your text. What's the main message or theme of the Bible book? What major portion of the Bible book does my passage fall into? Remember we identified Psalm 23 is in book one of the Psalms. Uh, Maybe a more familiar example. Romans 1 through 11 is primarily doctrine. Romans 12 through 16 is primarily duty. So where does my passage, if I'm studying Romans, where does it fall into that larger section? in the near context what's the main message or theme of the major section my passage falls into what's happening right before and right after and how might this have a bearing on my passage okay we went through that pretty fast now we get to the important part and I, I love asking this question on your behalf the question you might be asking is how on earth can I have useful spiritual meditation Based on this dry preparation and contextualization. How is that even possible? We haven't even gotten to the text yet. I'm just going to use a few concepts which I've already discovered just in the initial context study. I'm not going beyond that. I'm not going to sneak into observing the specifics of the text. But watch how much we can glean together just from the context study. Now... This is the part, remember I said in your, in your preparation for meditation that you've got some sort of writing implement, whether it's a pen and notebook or, or a, something electronic that you write with. This is the part that goes into your journal, goes into your record of what you're meditating on. This is it. And yes, you can just think about it. I mean, that's what meditation is, but there's much more value if we put your thoughts to paper. These don't represent a meticulous, precise purpose of Psalm 23. That will continue in your study. This just represents implications and meditations that are provoked by Psalm 23. So, let's do the steps in the useful meditation time. I said we would do this every time. Step one, prayer is the starting point. That's a must. Step two, choosing the small, specific biblical truth. And I'll give you three examples tonight. Step three, a reasonable and logical implication. And you make a list of those from that biblical truth. This is you thinking about it. Step four, self-examination questions. And step five, personal application and prayer. What I've done is I've picked three specific truths. And then we're going to explore the meditations on these truths. I'll go as far as I can. And you, you have it there, but I want to walk through as much of it as I can. Now... Uh, at the women's retreat, somebody asked, well, how did you pick those truths? Well, to be honest with you, I just picked my favorite ones. So that's what I did. Specific truth number one. There are three primary characters. Yahweh, the shepherd, the reader, and the reader's enemies. That's, that's the only truth. Yahweh, the shepherd, the reader, the reader's enemies. Here are the logical, reasonable logical implications you might come up with. These are three of the main characters in the Christian's life. I think it says in your notes, the three main characters. That's inaccurate. That's a typo. They are three of the main characters, though. Enemies might not be people necessarily, but they might be anything that hinders my relationship with God. The enemies of David in Psalm 23 were people. What does that show? It shows that there is a battle of good and evil that he was fighting. He was in the middle of it. The starting point, the lead character is Yahweh the shepherd, so our confidence in God starts with that main character. starts with God and His protection. As the reader, this psalm is easy and appropriate to place myself in. As empathetic with David, I understand his fears because they're universal. What does that mean? Anytime something is easy to understand, God wants you to understand it easily. He wants you to say, I get it. I know where you are. That He understands my fears and He understands that the solution of faith and confidence in Him is the only solution. Another implication, the amount of attention and attribution of strength I give to the other characters, God and my enemies, determines my level of confidence to be fearless. Let me say that in a shorter form. Am I going to pay more attention to God or to my enemies? Because it will determine my response. Enemies in the world include the world systems, false teachers, false gospels, my own sin habits, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful attitudes. Enemies in the world do not include the lost in general. They're not our enemies, although they act like it, but we're to pray for them. Believers in Christ are not our enemies. Shepherds in the church, my spouse, my children, my grandchildren, these are not enemies. Enemy-like people can include fellow believers who act like enemies. Romans 12 says that, and so we're told how to be gracious to them. And all who reject Christ are enemies of God. They are therefore ultimately his responsibility, not ours, because vengeance is mine, says God. So we we got 10 or so reasonable and logical implications from that one observation, that one meditation. From that, you could do some self examination questions, and this is where you write these Have I been guilty of attributing little strength to God and great strength to spiritual enemies? That's a great question. What sin habits are my primary spiritual enemies? Is there anyone I honestly know I'm treating as an enemy? If that's an unbeliever, how can I be light and salt without compromising my faith? If it's a believer, what am I going to do to draw nearer to that person according to the clear commands of Romans 12? In prayer, how do I address God as my shepherd and how do I pray concerning spiritual enemies? If I'm feeling persecuted by a fellow believer, what responsibilities do I have to the Lord and to that person? I'm reminded of Jesus' blessing in Matthew 5 for those who endure true persecution at the hands of spiritual enemies. How can I remind myself of this daily if that's my situation? Would I be willing to speak to a few close to me in an honest appraisal if I ever treat them or others like enemies when I shouldn't? Do I have a genuine righteous indignation against the true spiritual enemies such as false teachers, false gospels, and so forth? Do I have a growing hatred of the enemy of my own sin, which then leads to greater sanctification and reliance upon the Spirit of God? In my prayers, do I tend to focus immediately on my needs, potential spiritual enemies, versus following the example of Psalm 23 and placing God as the top focus as Psalm 23 begins with His loving actions? If you will, remember I said last night, you cannot rush meditation. This takes time. It takes time to sit and ask these questions. And let me tell you what the Spirit of God will do. As you begin writing these questions, there will be times where you can't write fast enough. It will happen. Personal application in prayer. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you are literally, based on this one meditation you're writing, Assignments for yourself. Here's an assignment. If I have a tendency to dislike fellow believers who irritate or offend me, I will write or meditate on Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If I have a tendency toward fearfulness, I will pray a Psalm 23 structured prayer daily for the next week that I'll repeat facts about God and His actions. Verses 1 through 3, I will repeat and affirm how safe I truly am even in the presence of my enemies, verses 4 through 6. I will ask three people close to me to assess honestly if they've ever observed me treating others as enemies. I will identify one spiritual sin enemy, pride, a sharp tongue, unsubmissive attitude toward authority, and so forth. I will fight that enemy with specific scriptures to pray through for X amount of time, for a week, for a month, for a year. For the true enemies of God, I will specifically pray X number of times to entrust their future and final justice or grace to God. I will intentionally release to the Lord my anxieties and frustrations and practice being peaceful even before justice arrives on this earth. You just gave yourself enough spiritual assignments to dig deeply into your own soul and do surgery on your own heart, all from the observation that there are three characters in this psalm. And I've written out a prayer Based on all these observations, my Father, thank you that you are completely understanding that I contend with enemies, but that you are my caretaker and protector. Thank you for writing Psalm 23 in a way that comforts me, that in the midst of my fears, you include me in your heavenly plans and gracious love. Help me to conquer my enemies of sin. That's on one specific truth. Let me give you another one. And, and, and I know you're saying, well, I get it now. No. We want to walk through these. Psalm 23, second's truth, doesn't easily fit into any categories of psalms, but generally is a song of confidence in God placed in the present tense. Now you might be saying, okay, no way you can get any meditation out of that. Well, here's some reasonable and logical implications. If God ordained that David give, uh, write Psalm 23 to give the reader confidence in the Lord, then the godly response to Psalm 23 is to increase my faith and confidence in the Lord. That's my response. This was meant to be sung. It's a song of confidence. It's universally applicable because it doesn't fit easily into any category of psalms so it applies across the board. It negates any notion of self-confidence. All confidence is focused on God alone. It begins and ends with the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He's a covenant-keeping God. His name is Provides the bookends of protection around the psalm. It's a safe place in between. If this is a song of confidence in God, then in the upcoming steps, it would be useful to count all the references to God in these six verses. There's 12 of them. If this is a song of confidence to benefit me as the reader, it would be useful to count all the references to me, the reader. There's 17 of them. This is an abundance of assurance that God knows we need confidence and we need faith. If this is a song of confidence in the face of spiritual enemies, it would be useful to count all the reference to spiritual enemies. There's two. You Get that? Twelve references to God. Seventeen references to myself to give me confidence. How many enemies? Twice. Oh, that's like a bug I can crush. You see that these observations just simply based on that one meditation. Self-examination questions based on your logical implications. In what ways do I demonstrate lack of confidence in God? What are my greatest fears and how can Psalm 23 guide me through those fears? What other passages would be helpful to meditate upon, memorize or write to fight against ungodly fear? What ways has God demonstrated his protection and faithfulness in my life? That gives me confidence. While God's protection doesn't mean protection from all pain and heartache, how has He protected me in the midst of pain and heartache? You notice that this psalm doesn't say, you prepare a table before me uh, after I've crushed your enemies. It's in the presence of my enemies. Now you, you write your own assignment, personal application in prayer. Ultimately, fear can be sinful. How can I repent of spiritual timidity and demonstrate genuine trust in the Lord? How about this one? I will list 50 to 100 ways God has protected me and been faithful to me in my Christian life and then thank Him for every one individually. You see how meditation begins to just mushroom into prayer. Since this is a song of confidence, I will find musical versions of Psalm 23 to sing with my family or in my own quiet time to aid in my worship of God. And then I wrote one prayer On this topic, my heavenly shepherd, I confess to you that I lately have been fearful about and you fill in your own blank. But you are fully trustworthy and I ask for your help to more completely place my confidence in you. Forgive me for any anxiety which is rooted in not trusting you. I remember how you have protected and helped me in such and such situation. I remember how you blessed me even in the midst of pain in that situation. Thank you for being my protecting shepherd." I promise you that if you take time to meditate on the word, your prayer life will explode. One more specific specific truth. It is the middle Psalm. Psalm 23 is the middle of the messianic trilogy of the suffering servant, the protecting shepherd, and the returning king. Here's some reasonable and logical implications. The ministry of Messiah is past, present, and future. That's a theological bombshell right there. All three phases of his ministry are described in Psalm 20, described in Psalm 22 through 24 include me in his graciousness. The cross to save me, his shepherding to preserve me and his rule to glorify me when he comes. He graciously includes me. Messiah is eternal and everlasting. David is writing that Messiah is his shepherd, present tense, 1000 years before the birth of Christ. The suffering of Messiah opens the door for us to be blessed by Him as a shepherd and a king. So Psalm 22 makes Psalm 23 and 24 possible for you. The high and lofty nature of this trilogy takes me beyond just focusing on how Psalm 23 is a personal blessing. It takes me higher than that. It moves me beyond personal application to simply being in awe of the larger redemptive plan of God. The trilogy outlines the basic plan of redemptive history, salvation through the cross, living life on a sinful earth filled with God's enemies, yet he's faithful and looking forward to the coming of a king who will make all things right. It tells you the redemptive history. And because the trilogy is set into book 1, which is headlined by Psalm 2, the coming king who will rule with a rod of iron... We get commentary on how the king of Psalm 24 will rule with might and power, which in turn, what does that tell us about the shepherd of Psalm 23? He is a mighty and strong shepherd. And so how do I ask myself questions about this? Make, make, make these deep, soul-searching questions. Do I immediately jump to Scripture and prayer, being focused on smaller things such as my feelings and my needs? Or do I push my thoughts toward grand and lofty themes that we see? Redemption, eternity, the depth of suffering in Christ, the certainty of His return as a King. Have I been guilty of lowering Jesus to my level and trying to make Him more relevant or trendy instead of thinking on the agony of His sacrifice, the faithfulness of His comfort, and the power of His reign? See also Psalm 22, 23, and 24. How can I elevate my thoughts of Christ to the level He deserves? How ought my life generally reflect a higher view of Christ? When I sin willfully, what does that say about what I'm truly thinking about? Christ as Savior, Shepherd and King. Do I need to repent of taking salvation for granted? Of not trusting His shepherding hand? Of not bowing in fear and awe to Him in obedience as my King? And so based on all of that, what are the assignments I'm going to give myself I will read Psalm 22-24 through as a unit ten times so that I can get the flow of the trilogy all at one time. I will thank the Son of God for being my Savior, my Shepherd, and my Sovereign. I'll read New Testament passages that show Jesus as Savior, as Shepherd, and as King. I'll repent of overemphasizing the lower view of Christ. I'll write down ten ways that Jesus as my King ought to influence my daily life in obedience. And just based on that one one meditation, my Savior, Shepherd and Sovereign, you are worthy to receive all honor and glory, not just in general, but in my daily life of covenant faithfulness to you. Let the cruelty of your suffering on the cross never leave my mind. And let the comfort of your shepherding protection on this earth rule my heart and let the glory of your future reign on earth thrill and inspire my soul. And we haven't even gotten to the text yet. I hope you're seeing the richness and the glory of the one-two punch of study and meditation to radically alter your walk with the Lord, to increase your maturity and your sanctification and to elevate your thoughts heavenward. But it takes time. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. To think these lofty thoughts. Sylvia and I right now are reading. There's several good ones. We're reading what I think is the best uh, biography of Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of Charles Spurgeon. And if you've read anything of Spurgeon, he's eloquent. He's poetic. You know, but he's he was a professional preacher. He's supposed to be that way. Susanna Spurgeon wrote five books. She is so lofty, so poetic, so heavenly, so majestic in the way she describes the Christian faith. Why is that? It's because she sat under her husband's preaching for 38 years. And she meditated on those truths. And when she was so sick that she couldn't go to church for periods of years at a time to help his wife. Spurgeon would bring her into a study uh, on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon and have her read resources to him to help him with his final sermon preparation. And so she meditated on the Word of God at a level. You read Susanna Spurgeon and you think, if my theology was slightly different, I'd want her as my pastor. Why does she think at that level? She thought at that level and wrote at that level because she took hours and hours and hours every week of her life for decades and decades to think the thoughts of God based in Scripture. And the outworking of it is nothing short of astounding. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. To be able to think those thoughts. We haven't even gotten to the text yet. We'll get to the text after you're sugarfied and have talked through this. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had to just begin now really starting to open the door to the glories of Psalm 23. But more importantly, I pray that we have opened the doors to the glories of studying the word of God for ourselves, taking time to meditate on the rich truths contained therein. We pray that you would bless these men in these coming moments and bring us back together here in a short time. We pray in Christ's name, amen.